I'm Jack Ruston. Welcome to the Ruston's Boneyard podcast. We're talking about real food, traditional cooking, nutrition, health and exercise. We're asking whether a more primal approach to life brings us further in line with the biology evolution has given us. We'll be exploring some of these topics with expert guests from the worlds of clinical practice and research. I'm not qualified to give any sort of medical or dietary advice, and nothing in this material should be considered as such. The opinions expressed here are for the purposes of discussion only. Please consult a qualified medical professional before undertaking changes to your diet. And now, on with the show. Thomas Joseph is a former investment banker who moved into butchery in order to realise his true passion to produce, source and deliver exceptional quality meat reared to the highest ethical standards. His family run Coxty Green Farm in Essex, just east of London, from which the butchery and farm shop are based. Tom is a master of dry ageing beef and sources the finest meat from around the UK, Europe and further afield. Tom, thanks so much for being here. Not a problem at all, mate. Anything for the old mate Jack Ruston, Ruston's Boneyard. That's right. Um, so look, what, what are you? Are you are you a butcher or are you a meat dealer or or what? Um, I, I'm I'm none of that really, to be honest with you. You know, I obviously I I know butchery in and out, but I'm not a butcher. Um, I guess I saw a massive opportunity in a market that I think had a lot of room to be made better as it were and uh jumped on what i think is probably the most exciting trend there is which is this kind of movement to sourcing ethical produce movement to investing in your food again movement to just enjoying you know food cooked at home once again because that's one of the biggest problems uh in the industry is that a lot of people in the food industry as a whole is that people have lost that connection um so but back to your question what am i um I mean, yeah, all of the above, really. You know, I, I actually don't work in the shop um, anymore. Um, I don't work really processing any of the orders, um, mainly because, you know, to grow this business and to keep it going where it's going, it's impossible to be doing those jobs and also working on what's kind of more important in terms of the marketing and brand awareness and really kind of try and propel this forward for the future. Um, I guess that's where my kind of capitalist side comes in um because i'm always thinking about how to make it bigger and better for lots of reasons you know it's not not just to make money but you know once we get more of a reach we can then affect more people and those people will then ultimately have better food to eat every day you know it's you know i'm not a saint but i'm you know that is the truth of what we're doing you know the, the more aware people are of what we're doing the more they'll start to question what the supermarkets are giving them or what maybe a not so good butchery is giving them and then the sort of price thing becomes a little bit less relevant because obviously you know as you know the stuff that we sell is very expensive but it doesn't mean that that everyone's put out of the market you know it, it just means that you need to find things that are appropriately priced for you um, there's tons of things you can do for nice weekly meals that don't cost, you know, Wagyu beef prices. It's just that we also do sell, you know, a portion of our business is devoted to really, really high end stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, for us, the business is all about doing things properly. Um, and that's kind of how I end up leaving what I was doing because I just wasn't completely happy. You know, I started off as a trader for a small firm. Um, went to an oil company and then to an investment bank. And by the time I got to the investment bank, it was sort of, you know, it was just a, a mundane 
role really you know I wasn't really doing what I wanted to do and that was quite lucky because it gave me the opportunity to sit back and think right what do I really want to do over the next kind of what I call the best 20 years of my life which is you know these next 20 years I think from 25 to 45 you know you've you've got a really really massive opportunity to do something you love um, and a lot of people unfortunately get stuck into that rat race idea uh, which, you know, we're all sort of sadly led down that path because we all go to uni, then we go, you know, and get the job. And that's kind of what everyone does. Um, so I was very lucky to, to have that foresight and to kind of have my, I guess, midlife crisis or epiphany at the age of 28 or something or 26. Um, yeah, so so left and started, you know, what you what you know and love today. There's so much to sort of unpack in what you've in what you've just said um i think yeah go, go, going going back i mean you 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 said it, it was interesting what you said about giving people what they what they want and what they need because actually what we've been seeing is this this sort of this this push towards plant-based foods mm-hmm. and and what's kind of great is to is to see you thriving doing exactly the opposite of that and what you're effectively saying to me is actually no you know you know what people don't want or at least not everybody wants plant-based food what people want is is really really good quality meat and judging by the speed at which your business has grown uh there's obviously some truth in that yeah i mean look i i say multiple times when i'm in the shop talking to customers you know or even talking to some of the guys that work for for me um that veganism is by far the best thing that ever happened to the meat industry. And people look at me funny when I say that because they think, well, how, how can that be true? But the reality is if you look at it properly um, and, and you trade the idea right, then you know it's a win-win for whoever gets involved in the right way of doing things. Because veganism has, has you know, shown a massive flaw in the, in the food, or sorry, in the meat industry. That is that the meat industry has been for a lot, long time very you know, non-transparent, you don't know where your stuff's come from, it's en masse, it's cheap, it's just, you know, run-of-the-mill rubbish stuff that no one really knows where it's from or even why they're eating it. They just go to the supermarket, pick it up, put it in a bag, go home, either cook it or freeze it, and then it comes out another day. Um, so so veganism has said, well, no, you know, that's all wrong. Uh, actually, what we need to be doing to live a healthy life is to just eat plants. Now, you and I know that's completely not true because we have forward-facing eyes, we have sharp teeth, and we have a brain that is very large and that can compute a lot better than, you know, basically being on all fours and eating grass. Um, We were never meant to do that. Um, So the idea behind veganism is flawed and the idea behind eating commercial meat is flawed. So there is a solution, which is to find and farm and then go and find other farms, um, you know, who also believe in the same sort of idea behind actually sourcing proper food, aging it in a way that is, is, I guess, you know, the way I see it is the only real way of doing things, but, aging it properly um and then you know actually charging your customers you know so that you actually make money out of it there's there's no point in doing this um and doing it on the cheap you know we don't do anything on the cheap that goes for the equipment that we buy uh the fridges that i you know personally make um the custom built fans the dehumidifiers that we use now if you went to a standard place they wouldn't even think about doing any of this and they would try to do it as cheaply as possible because the product they're selling in their eyes is not able to generate enough money to afford those things. Um, 
So you kind of got to look at it and, and bring it back to, okay, what do you want out of this business? What, what is your idea on how this business should be? And if, if at any point your idea is cheap, there's always someone that's going to do it cheaper. That's just the reality of the world. You can't get away from the fact that the supermarkets have got the deepest pockets in the world and they're never going to be outdone on cheap meat. So why would you want to support it to start with? And then morally and ethically, you know, it's just, it's just the right thing to do. You know, no one, there's no one on the world that is thinking to themselves, oh yeah, I'm really pleased that, you know, those cattle were fed in a barn their entire lives and the pigs, you know, basically didn't have enough room to even turn around their entire lives. Mm. Um, there's not one person who would think to themselves, yeah, that's a great idea. I should eat that kind of food. Um, mm, and then yeah. coupled with the stuff that actually goes into your meat. So, you know, the, the inputs that they eat, why would anyone in their right minds want to eat? some of the crap that you know is fed to commercial livestock it just doesn't make any sense um so yeah you know the the trend for me is all about this kind of idea behind ethically raised produce dry aged properly it's really just bringing it back to basics you know if you think you know pre-war time nearly everything was organic like there wasn't a label it was just organic because there was no need or there was no idea behind yeah, okay, right, well, let's, you know, if we've got this field, instead of making, you know, let's say 1,000 tonnes, we spray this shit on it, and then we've got 4,000 tonnes out of it, mm. and then we'll smash it. So that's kind of where it's all gone wrong, and that's really where, I guess, um, well, a portion of greed, but but also a portion of, you know, oh, we need to feed all these these people. There's there's so many avenues you can go down, you know, with, with, with on this area. Um, but the reality is that, no pesticides or herbicides are good for the environment or us. You know, in our butchery, we don't use any artificial preservatives um, in any produce that we sell. So everything that we make is always made simply with the meat and our spicing or salt and pepper. That's literally it. Um, I don't actually know any other butchery in the UK that does that. Because every other butchery, I, I regularly buy from other butcheries because that's <laughs> the way you've got to see, you know, see what they're up to, so to speak. I haven't found one place that puts salt and pepper, you know, or anything else. Um, and it's sad because that's really important too. You know, we, we do genuinely stand by what we say and we want to give people the best quality produce that is ethically raised. Um, and I don't think it's as hard as what a lot of people make out. I just don't. I just don't agree that it's not that hard to find good quality farms um, because I think there's a lot of good quality farms out there that just need to be found and marketed in the right way uh, or brought on board by someone like us. And all of a sudden they've got a pipeline, you know, of, uh, of, of steady sales for their farm. It's just that unfortunately the industry, um, I guess a lot of people maybe just don't know that they can market their produce that way and then their produce gets stuck, you know, down uh, into maybe into a commercial area um, and then you have some like really nice stuff going through the commercial side of things too which no one really knows about so that there's yeah the, the, the industry is is flawed in many ways um, but as I said you know I, I think the most you know it's one of the most exciting times for meat because because you have got everything against you right <laughs> you know every single thing is mm -hmm. against you um, until you see something, you know, cool in the news where they start saying, oh, maybe we've got it wrong. You know, actually, meat and dairy is not that bad. So the needle's turning, you know. Yeah, but Joanna Blythman, she's out there. It's, she's it's giving happening. us the good news. It's happening. But the other thing that's really, really important is that we have to find other people committed to making that change. You know, I don't class people doing the similar sort of thing to me or, or us 
as competitors. Of course, we're competing to some extent, but we're competing at a different game to what the others are. That's the true competition. You know, the supermarket is a true competition and not in a way that we want to, um, you know, annihilate them on sales. <laughs> we just want to say, look, guys, you know, there is an alternative if you want to eat good quality food and do right by the planet and not have to just eat, uh, you know, some form of, of uh uh, soy curds uh, flavoured with numbers and e-numbers and letters that you can't mm. yeah see but maybe, I mean, maybe I'm <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you're wrong at all I mean it's interesting because uh, what you say about veganism I mean you know on my channel whenever I've had vegans come and kind of say oh you know you guys need to look into things and find out the real truth and all this kind of stuff that they come out with the, the reality is that when you start engaging with those people, you find that if you look at, say, the carnivore community and the vegan community, they normally want the same things. They, they just disagree on this very, very fundamental issue of how to get there. But like you say, the values are the same. You've got two groups of people who are very passionate about trying to do the right thing. And when you then look at regenerative agriculture and how, you know, we've got people farming carbon negatively, farming animals carbon negatively, you know, it makes a mockery of all this, this, this sort of, you know, methane emissions nonsense, which, which, you know, with animals is part of a biogenic cycle that goes up and comes down. And, you know, then there's this great air elephant in the room, which is the fact that, you know, we're digging up carbon from under the ground and burning it. And, and we don't want to stop doing that. And everyone's blaming farming. It's just, a, you know, it's a lot. But, but anyway, I mean, we could go down the world's biggest rabbit hole there. But I think you've explained why you're different from a high street butcher or from or from a supermarket butcher necessarily. So, you know, who are the clients for Thomas Joseph Butchery? Who, who are, they? Are, are they? Are they local? Are they online? What kind of people are they? Who do you deal with? Um. So I would say that the makeup of our business is about 40% online. Uh, and then we have about 50, 55% um, then is obviously in the shop. And then 5% is wholesale customers. Um, we don't really do a huge amount of wholesale simply because it's just not good bang for our buck. You know, there's no point in us doing stuff um, for, for not having the money we need. Um, I mean, we do do a few places, but they don't really pay that much differently from people coming into the shop. Um, I don't think for us it's really uh, the best area to get into. Um, I, I don't enjoy not being paid for 45 or 60 days whilst, you know, someone's sitting there and they can't be asked mm -hmm. to pay us or actual problem. That's one of the things you have with a lot of restaurants and wholesale people. Um, so, yeah, but but our, our kind of clientele locally, I mean, it's really mixed. You know, obviously, as you know, well we do we probably have one of the biggest ranges in terms of stock um locally and probably online you know if you compare to nearly anyone we're, we're right up there with having the a real huge amount of stuff um and that goes from you know grass-fed lambs grass-fed beef free-range you know pasture-raised pork all the way up to four or five different types of wagyu from across you know the world um, so our, our customers really are, are extremely varied, just like our produce. Um, we have lots of people who are, you know, really dedicated to, to sourcing quality produce for their health. Um, but we also, on the other hand, have lots of people who just want the absolute best tasting piece of meat. Um, and we're very, very lucky and fortunate in that we can we can kind of offer that to both people. Um, and that was always the goal with with the, the business. You know, the kind of the, the real the truth behind me getting into it was 
just simply that I I enjoyed the industry because I was buying a lot of you know what I thought was great quality dry aged meat, and I kind of just said, well, you know, why can't I do that? You know, what's what's stopping me make make my own quality dry aged meat? Um, and we're able to cater to to, to that kind of that uh, area of the market very very well, um, as you know. Um, so sorry, I just lost lost train of thought. Where no, no going. worries. Let, let let me ask you. Let me ask you. So, I think a lot of people struggle with the way beef particularly so let's take beef okay so the way it's sometimes described you know you'll hear people say oh i've got this um this wagyu uh, it's a wagyu cross or it's uh, or it's spanish angus or it's a hereford grass-fed hereford whatever so just explain what that means because we're, we're not talking necessarily about where that beef comes from are we we've got we've got different breeds even though those breeds might have place names. So just, just explain to us a little bit, what, what are the kind of, what are the fundamentally the different breeds that you guys stock and where do they come from and, and why maybe would you choose one product over another? What might a Spanish, you know, a Galician, uh, a, a Galician blonde, what, what, what might that animal offer over say some Wagyu from Sussex? Yeah. So, we, as you know, you know, we do a huge variety. If we start with kind of Wagyu is the most expensive and exclusive part. We do four or five different types of Wagyu from uh, Australia and the US. Um, now, if you want Wagyu, you know, you're looking at super marbling, super fatty cuts that are, I guess, not probably something you would probably eat every single day. They're just very, very filling. They're not like a normal kind of piece of meat. We do have UK Wagyu. We do quite a lot of UK Wagyu. So that's usually what we'd call F1 Wagyu. So it's Wagyu cross. Wagyu generally cross with um, with Angus, um, which does really, really well outside. So we've got a couple of different suppliers there. Um, and if you, again, you know, pound for pound, that's really, really good quality and it's not as expensive. So the UK stuff, obviously, it's going to be more expensive than your, you know, average beef let's say um but it's not going to be anywhere near the kind of money you're getting from you know the, the real kind of exclusive places over in australia and the us um simply down to the marbling and i guess the branding you know that the the, the us stuff and and the australian stuff has got a big following and they're able to charge for it you know and people like it um if you go from that to sort of the opposite end of the spectrum uh, obviously, our farm here uh, does original population Herefords, so they're a, a native breed. Um, and that's kind of, you know, if you're looking for something like that, I guess you'd be looking more for the health benefits. You know, they're completely pasture raised their entire lives. They're outside, um, only eating a forage-based diet and or haylage and silage. Um, and that kind of beef is exactly what we try to sort of source from other farms. Uh, for me personally, I like shorthorns. Um, I like blue greys. Uh, and the Highland cows as well. You know, we, we source a lot of stuff from Scotland um, because you can get, or well, for me personally, I just think that a lot of the farms up there do really, really good quality grass-fed farming. Um, and then if you go over to sort of Europe, we do the Spanish Angus, which again is a very, very kind of well put together piece of meat. Um, they obviously know their genetics well. And that I would say is kind of your cross between UK and maybe, you know, the high end Wagyu. I would say that it's got the marbling content. It's got the fattiness to it. It's absolutely gorgeous to, to eat. It's lovely and tender. Um, so if you were wanting something that's maybe a little bridge between the two, that's probably where I'd go. And then 
after that, you know, we've kind of got this ex-dairy and Galician kind of area. So the Galician beef that we do is always reared to about eight or even 12 years old. It's a lot older. Um, spends a huge amount of time outside on pasture, uh, roaming around uh, on the hills in Galicia. And that is kind of, well, a completely different kettle of fish in terms of what we think about beef. It's not always that tender. Um, it's all, you know, generally, I would say nine and a half times out of 10, got this glorious yellow fat. It's, you know, obviously been eating a lot of grass and led a long life. Um, but it has this unique, I guess overly beefy flavour that you just can't, you know, you can't put your finger on it being anywhere else apart from there. Um, so if you were into your steaks, you know, that's kind of a, a great area to go to, but with the caveat that it may not be as tender. Um, and then the last thing that we kind of do a lot of in the UK and a bit from Europe is ex-dairy. So ex-dairy beef being a dairy cow once, uh, then retired on pasture for a minimum of 12 months, um, sometimes up to sort of two, maybe three years. Uh, and these are cows that would have probably just gone into the, the standard system, um, but they've been retired, allowed to sort of gain some fat and some really heavy marbling. And again, similar to the Galician, they become a very, very flavoursome piece of meat that is, is not really something that's very standard at all and a lot of people have it and they, they kind of can't believe that's beef because it's so tasty compared to what they may have had uh, normally uh, and even in you know in our shop if you compare it to a lot of the sort of UK stuff once you've had a UK ex-dairy it's quite hard to go back to eating something that's maybe not ex-dairy just simply because of the flavour profile again sometimes not as tender but for me personally I quite like having something that's a little bit of a chew. I don't want it to be tough, but it's quite nice to actually feel it instead of it being, you know, buttery and melting away completely. So, okay. So if we consider nature to be the breed and nurture to be the way it's raised, what it's fed, where it lives, yeah. um, to what extent, I mean, obviously to my understanding, you have to match the breed of the breed of animal to the location in that you can't put some great hairy Highland in a boiling hot country cause it's too hot for it and vice versa. But are they, are they gonna, are these, are these animals gonna end up tasting the same if they're raised the same way or is it or does the breed itself have a flavor that you can discern uh, uh that's a good question actually because i think it really depends um for me personally what i find the shorthorn breeds to be the most consistent good flavor and tender beef in the uk i just find it doesn't matter where it comes from we have lots of different farms that have shorthorn yeah. be consistently great um that being said, I do think that where an animal is or has lived does have an impact. And obviously what it's fed on, you know, if if it's eating the best quality grass from, you know, a, a, a field where it's got acres of room yeah. and it has no stress, it's going to taste very, very different to something yeah. that rest or is not eating great quality grass. And that is a big part of it. So obviously when you do anything at scale, you cannot see every blade of grass that an animal eats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But idea behind you know kind of finding farms that you consistently get good quality stuff from um at the moment we're using a lot of red poles from a friend of mine over in cheshire because they're completely grass-fed and outdoor raised and they've been amazing you know the great yellow fat gorgeous kind of smell once they're aged for a couple of or sorry for four weeks or so and um yeah pound for pound been been absolutely fantastic so 
I, I don't think there is any one great breed. I just think it's nice to know what you're eating and you should always ask. And then at least you have sort of, you know, some feedback. You can have frame of reference. Yeah, exactly. You know, I like that and that was that. So if I get it or if my butcher gets that in again, um, I'll have, I'll have some more. But that's also about finding that relationship. You know, one of the things we try to do is actually tell everyone what it is when we're, you know, when we're selling it. Um, and that's important to me because it means that we're doing our jobs properly. And if you don't actually know, then there's something wrong with what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No industry is to be selling something they don't know where it came from. I mean, it's interesting. I I was uh, I can remember reading in Western A. Price when he's talking about the study of the Swiss uh, mountain communities and uh, the cattle there are taken up very, very high up close to the snow line during the summer months when the glacier retreats. They go up very, very high up the snow line and um, the grass up there is is different apparently which which affects the sort of nutrition of the milk that they produce and and then presumably you know you'd have to infer the meat as well um and and i can remember the best i mean i think the best tasting piece of meat i've ever had from you was some finnish simmental which which probably had a similar kind of environment a very pure kind of clean air clean water you know, and I, I wonder whether we have a problem globally now with this, with this reju- reduction of nutrients in our soil. You know, we're, we're so busy monocropping and building cities that we're reducing those nutrients and, and that, that environment which we need so badly for these animals. Yeah, I guess we are to an extent. And, and unfortunately, you know, go back to the vegan idea is that that's only going to make that worse, you know, because... Yeah. The whole the whole system you know if you look at just the earth as one whole system it needs to operate in a state of flux at all times with what it needs and predators have got to eat meat and you know the other guys are not supposed to eat meat they've got to eat grass you can't sort of change where we are um particularly at this stage where there are so many of us it doesn't make sense okay yeah let's 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 grow the population by another couple of billion uh, and then we can't really do anything because there's so many people and the only way to feed us is with uh, something liquid oh great great yeah let's 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 keep going you know it doesn't make any sense mm. um so, uh, as you said you know that that has had an impact across flavor profiles definitely and that's why there's such a big difference in the flavor of stuff that we produce and sell compared to something that hasn't been anywhere that you know, has seen outside or is eating a very standard ration, um, it's going to taste like the ration. You know, your yeah. beef is going to bland because it's eating bland food that is not designed for beef. If it's eating beef cake, which is that, which is honestly that what it's called, it's going to taste like beef cake. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's- so, so are people, um, are people coming in and asking for grass fed, uh, meat or are you, or are you simply saying to them, guys, this is what you want? A uh, combination of both, I think. As I said, a lot of people come here just simply for quality. That's just very obvious. They just want really, really good quality stuff. That's great. Uh, some other people want to ask questions. You know, they want to sort of understand a little bit more about it. And then on the other side, you know, we have people who are just sort of wanting, you know, only something that's ethically raised and, and, and proper. Um, but we obviously, we don't, our marketing obviously on online is is done in that way that we tell people what it is um we tell them it's grass fed in the shop we've got a little bit of it but to be honest with you i think it's more about building that trust over a long time you know you can't really get it all out in one one go because people will buy something and then they need to come back and 
kind of buy into the idea of of the the real proper farming over a period of time mm. um but don't really run it down people's throats so to speak but it is what it is i think the the proof is kind of in the pudding and you know when when you've got a display out in a shop and you know all the fat on the outside of the the uh forib caps and the sirloins and everything that we've got in there is all yellow then it sort of says itself because people come in and say i've never seen beef that looks like this and i say well that's not really very surprising <laughs> yeah it looks like a looks like a cupcake i mean i you know so i'm interested uh to know w with regards to the fat i mean as you, as you know from our dealings i'm i'm all about the fat and actually i mean recently i've cut back a little bit but it was always when i was very strictly carnivore that was where all my energy came from and so i would eat these very fatty cuts of beef and 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 of course we both know that fatty beef traditionally has been seen as being awful you know people look at it oh well you know i they served me this ribeye and it had a big chunk of fat in the middle and the rump steak had a big bit of fat on the edge and oh i don't want that so have you have you seen this changing are people embracing the fat a bit more have you seen anything you know from the kind of low carb world with people coming in and saying actually yeah you know i don't eat a lot of chips but i want a fatty steak are you seeing that at all in your dealings yeah, I, I think you've got you've got a couple you've got two very distinct different people who who kind of come in and, and, and want fatty meat. You've got the person that comes in and says, Oh, I know I shouldn't, but I'm gonna anyway. I love the fatty stuff. And they don't realise how important that is. They they mm. literally got no idea how healthful they're being by, you know, eating something really fatty. Uh, and then on the flip side, you know, you've got people like you and I who understand the whole idea behind, you know, saturated fat and, and, and it's so vital to health that reducing it down seems like the most moronic thing in the world. Um, they're not, a, there's not a lot of those people, you know, there's not loads and loads of people that are coming in and, and kind of wanting low carb stuff. Um, but I think the needle has started to change. Uh, I think people are, are slightly more aware, albeit it's a very, very slow trajectory. I think it's going in the right way. You know, people are definitely cooking more at home since lockdown. That's a fact. People are definitely more involved with their food because of veganism. Veganism has made people actually want to find out where their food's from in terms of meat, if they're going to eat meat. And then you have that other portion of society that just doesn't give a toss about really anything. They're just going to carry on doing what they're doing. Mm. The idea really is to sell what you're selling to the people who want to buy it. And then once you've done that, think about how to convince the other people into something, if it's a good product. The idea should never be to try and sell your product to someone who doesn't want it. And that's the, the mass market. The mass market does not want it because they just don't care. Um, so over time, what I hope and I sort of see happening with you know more and more people is that actually we will get people more invested in their health. We will get people more invested into low carb diets because it's clearly the, the really the only way that our world is going to survive. Um, but it's it's definitely promising in our shop, definitely. Um, and you know, obviously, we 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 sell loads of organic veg online and in the shop, and we don't have really anything that's kind of too carby. You know, it it doesn't really go with what we we sell. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's definitely positive, mate. I think we've definitely got something to go with. It's not we're a lot further on today than we were, let's say, ten years ago. Mm. A lot. Yeah, you know, we and don't get me wrong. I know other areas are a lot further on like how easy it is to get a big mac at home i understand that's on the other side of it but in terms of meat as a thing i definitely think we are you know we're we're on the right path anyway 
So one of the things that you've mentioned a couple of times um, is this is this issue of dry aging. So it, where where wet aging is uh, cutting up uh, cutting up an animal's carcass, sealing it up in vac seal, let it sit for a couple of weeks, and then put it out on the supermarket shelf. Explain to us what dry aging is. Explain to us why it's so important and 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 how you do it. You've you've made these fridges. You've you've set them up yourself to your own specifications. Tell us about it. Uh, so essentially, dry aging is pretty much kind of I guess what the original butchers back in the late 1800s used to do. You know, it, it's, it's very, very simple. You basically hang stuff in a fridge. Um, now, back in those days, they weren't able to keep anything really much longer than a few days. So everything would be slaughtered, brought in, chopped up within a couple of days, and then, you know, it would be out. Um, but a long time ago, someone worked out that if you, you know, cut the carcass up very very short after slaughter and vacuum packed every part of it you could make a lot more money because you're not losing any moisture and then you're mm. selling that to whoever buys it so if you work back from that principle that's why it's not widespread is that it costs a lot more money so when i started um wanting to learn how to dry age and, and kind of thinking about how this should be possible for any person to to achieve I just sort of started researching, thinking about how you kept things for a longer period of time and, and how to do it properly, not to just do it to a standard that was okay, to actually have, you know, the, the, the best kind of facilities that we could um, we could actually do ourselves. Um, and I taught myself with a little book, I think you can get it online, it's like How to Dry Age or something, made a little beer fridge into this dry aging unit with some salt and some fans and, and sort of taught myself, I guess, the nuts and bolts of what I needed to know to do it at a bigger scale. Um, so essentially dry aging really is just altering the environment that anything is kept in um, to to allow it to be you know maturing over a period of time instead of going off over a period of time um, sadly the, the majority of dry aging is, is sort of just decomposing meat that's going off uh, and is just being kept and being held on to very very different to actually dry aging uh, at any scale because what we do is alter the environment so that we've got a lower humidity than what it should be so we withdraw it down to 85 percent um, and then we have custom built fans all in the ceilings of our cold stores to whisk the airborne bacteria which are present in the air that we're breathing now uh, faster and faster around so they can't really lay down on any surfaces too fast that's kind of what happens when you're having something decompose all airborne bacteria will you know decompose any type of dead thing so to speak um and you know what you're trying to do is slow the rate at which they can um, and what happens is that after let's say two or three days of being in our environment the bacteria started to dry out the surface uh, obviously in that instance you're losing moisture it's not losing moisture from the entire piece of meat it's just losing that area on the outside and what that does is it it, it makes it self-limiting as the bacteria uh, start to progress they build a crust which they then can't go through anymore and that's where it sort of stops um, as you know we dry stuff for a very long time up to sort of 150 200 days sometimes for, for certain people um, and we can keep stuff for you know that time in a very very good way simply because we're altering the environment to what I believe is the perfect condition to keep stuff 
at an optimum level without mold growth. You can go one step further and you can um, fit your cold store with UV lamps, which will take out pretty much all of the airborne bacteria. But that is a little bit defeating the object of what you're trying to do mm. because, yes, okay, we've made it really, really clean. Actually, you need some bacteria to perform the job and you need some form of aged flavor, otherwise it won't be aged. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I think best to sort of step away from that unless you really can't get your environment to where it wants to be um and it might sound like i've literally just given everyone that listens to this the 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 ability to go home or start their own business dry aging and i, I tell everyone how to do it because the reality is that it costs so much money to carry on doing it mm. in terms of and there's so much waste involved that a lot of people don't you know have the ability to do that or want to and that goes for anyone who's in the industry now it no one is not stopping no one doing it but if you want to do it properly and you want to do it at scale it just costs a lot of money that's the reality of it um, yeah, because, because you're could... keeping it for a long period of time you know well i suppose you're, you're keeping it for a long period of time but you you've got let's say you've got um you know you've got a beef forward that's that's you know 18 15 18 inches long and you dry age that, then the outside of it after 60 days is going to look like Tutankhamun's balls and you've got to cut that <laughs> off. And yeah. then you've lost, so you've lost that bit and you've lost, moisture, you've lost moisture as a whole. So it then weighs less and it's smaller. So you've got to charge as if it was the bigger piece that it once was. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's part of it. You know, you've, you've basically lost a certain amount of product and over the course of 30 to 40 days we will lose 10 percent of our product um but obviously the most most costly part of it is the the powering of the fans the powering yeah. of the humidifier that's the most costly part and the fact that you know we basically try to take or we do take nearly everything fresh simply because i don't want it being at someone else's cold store no. in whatever they correct um yeah. and you know that means that we're buying stuff well before we're ready to use it so again it's you know capital outlay you know you've got a lot of money sitting around in your fridges you've got a huge amount of stock at any one time um there's a lot more to it but they're the kind of things that as you grow you you're able to develop and you're able to sort of do what you do um but it does make it very hard for anyone who's wanting to start doing it because it's just nearly impossible to be able to to do it at that scale um yeah. because you're not really sure how to do it but secondly you know you've got to put in so much money to it um and you've then got to sell it you've got to get rid of it to someone at some point um well which you need on customers so that's the kind of things that just don't you know they're not they're not just there when you start right yeah and i suppose that yeah yeah i mean from a consumer point of view I, you know i thought about it at one point oh i could get an old fridge and do this or that yeah or i could call tom and just get his really good dry aged beef and then i could have it all the time instead of you know 45 days down the road you know for for a couple of days so look um all right um let me ask you a few pop questions all right uh your favorite steak cut and sauce uh and by sauce you mean where it's from you don't mean yeah like bayonet. no <laughs> no we're not into bayonets screw bayonets <laughs> yeah exactly uh okay favorite cut well i mean i'm gonna be a bit of a i'm gonna be a bit picky because you haven't told me i can only have one but 
I, I actually, I, I love all of it, mate. Like I literally, you know, I think there's so many good cuts and they're all for different purposes. There is no one best cut. When someone says, oh, I just love ribeyes. Like, well, have you thought about any other part of the cut? You know, there, no, there you can only one. have one. You can oh. only have one from now forevermore. Okay. If I was going to have one thing ever for forever, you know, I think I would go with something like a piece of rump. All right. Like it. The king of steaks. Yeah, because, mate, you know, when, you know, on a nice summer's evening, you've, you've fin finished work, you, you've had your steak out for a couple of hours, it's pretty warm, you just season it with some salt, like the barbecue, bish, bash, bosh, mm. you know, you're loving it. You know, there, there's nothing not to like on a piece of rum. And the fat that you get, you know, that little nugget of fat underneath the kind of, um, underneath the picanha area of the rump cap, mm. oh, mate, pop that off, have that with the rest of the steak, you know, you're done. Amazing. Yeah, amazing. I like your style, um, and and so are you. Uh, I take it from that you would you would agree with me that really the best way to cook a steak is over coals. Yeah, I, I I don't think I've cooked in a cast iron pan now for maybe like two years. Ooh, controversial. I know uh, because I just don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy the 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 buttery oil fatty fattiness of it compared okay. to having on the, and and i find i i love lighting the fire mate like i'm a yeah. child at heart yeah i am doing it and if but i'm gonna have on plate, you know i want to go and do it over the coals it speaks to a very kind of primal part of us as well doesn't it it's like oh. the comfort of the fire and the food being part of that fire and then sitting by the fire and eating the food is a very primal thing yeah, definitely. You know, you, you can't deny it. You know, just it, when you eat it over after being over coals, you cooked it over the coals. You just sort of feel like it was what you were meant to do. Now, I'm sure we were mm. meant to go on foot for two or three miles and, you know, slowly, slowly kill it somewhere, which doesn't sound great. But that's probably what we were actually meant to do. Um, but yeah, and I agree. You know, and, and it's one of like life's unique pleasures that you know doesn't really cost anything additionally but having a crackling fire on you know and actually cooking it and hearing the sear and the flames licking the meat it's just like you can't you can't beat it you know yep i agree all right um low budget what is your budget steak if someone wants if, if someone wants a, a good steak and they don't want to spend the earth or budget cut budget cut budget cut so if we were talking a steak, you know, you've got to be thinking bavette. Yes. Yeah. Ribeye. Um, and it's got buckets of flavour. Uh, it's a absolutely delicious steak. You know, really, really good. Um, great over the coals or in a pan. Doesn't really matter. Uh, I just go for the coals because I love it. But um, any anyway, you can have it with chimichurri sauce. You can have it with nothing. You can have it with, you know, fries if you want to. You can have it with a salad. It goes with everything. And then if you were thinking about just a cut, I would definitely go shin of beef. You know, so simple, so mm. tasty, gelatinous, yummy. You know, you think kind of getting into wintertime now, sticking it on in the morning and leaving it there all day, you know. Yeah. You know there's not like about it, you know. Yeah, they're my, my two budget cuts. Tom, where can people find you? If uh, anyone in the UK, you deliver to their door, don't you? Yep, we do next day delivery, uh, even if you purchase on day before up till 10 a.m. So if you purchase today, well, it's already gone, but obviously tomorrow by 
10 a.m. We can still get it to you the next day. Uh, we ship to everywhere across the UK. We do ship to Northern Ireland. There is a surcharge and we do ship offshore up into the Highlands. But again, there is a surcharge. Um, if you ever want to think bespoke, just drop us an email. Hello at thomasjosephbutchery.co.uk website. As I just said, thomasjosephbutchery.co.uk. You can find us on Instagram, thomasjosephbutchery. And uh, that's pretty much it. But yeah, obviously, if you're local to Brentwood and Essex, you can pop into the store. Um, it's open from Tuesday to Sunday. So yeah, plenty of options. Mate, that's amazing. Thank you so much for your time. So what I want to do, if it's all right with you, I want to come down with a camera one day and see your fridges and see all the meat and ask you some more questions and maybe if anybody's got questions for you if they post them in the comments and then when i come and see you i'll ask you and we can just do a little follow-up and um that'd be great thanks so much it's you know and thanks for doing what you do and making a difference in this uh in this whole space because you know i, I think it is needed and uh and you know everybody that's doing it is to some extent you know putting their head above the parapet so you know cheers mate and thanks for being here no, no problem at all. I, I, as I said, I, I do think the needle's turning and I do think that people are starting to go the right way. There's definitely more, not competition, but there's definitely more people trying to do a better job. So that's all we can kind of ask for, you know? Mm. Awesome. That's it for now. Come and find me on Instagram at Ruston's Boneyard and at www.rustonsboneyard.com. Keep cooking. <laughs>